Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. I am my am Mark Mandel, and I am joined once again by my partner in crime, the increasingly irresponsible Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing fine, Mark. I'm totally irresponsible. Absolutely. <laughs> Who wants to grow up? That just seems ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. So, getting started with our usual shenanigans, uh, what interesting things have you found that have happened today? I actually found quite a few funny ones okay. and you know useful ones. So, one actually interesting one for this community is probably in 1958, Jack Kilby, like an engineer at Texas Instruments at the time, demonstrated the first integrated circuit. Oh, cool. That's quite interesting. And um, in 2001, um, a very well-known airline in Australia, NSET Australia, I don't know if you remember them, Mark, from like actually oh, flying yeah. with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be a really good airline. They basically went broke because Air New Zealand kind of fucked them up, to be quite frank. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is quite a sentiment against Air New Zealand in Australia still because of that. Probably, just because yeah. New Zealanders, it's, it's just really nothing else. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's fair enough. And um, another interesting thing that I found is in 1990, um, East and West Germany signed the um, treaty, a final treaty of settlement uh, with the four powers, you know, after World War II, basically, to make sure that Germany can be reunified. Oh, okay. Um, what have I got? I've got the... Um uh, what have we got? I've got uh, Hong Kong Disneyland opens in 2005. Have you ever been? I have not. Okay. Um, I should actually look this up because it sounds important. The Battle of Marathon back in four, 490 BC, which I've definitely heard of before, but I can't remember what it is. Um, I'm just looking it up right now, coincidentally. It's like, it's like a Persian... Uh, first invasion of, yeah, of Greece. Greece. Yeah, there you go. There we go. That's the uh, 2,504th anniversary of that. Okay. Uh, the Monkeys premiered on television today, 48th anniversary. The what? The Monkeys? The Monkeys, yeah, TV show. What is The Monkeys? I uh, don't know. It's an English TV show. I remember just seeing stuff about it when growing up. Okay. The 50th shuttle mission was launched today, 22nd anniversary. Um, and the Gemini 11 was launched today as well, the 48th anniversary of that. Uh, that's probably uh, that's probably the, the the ones I like the most for, for anniversaries today. Yeah, fair enough. So you know, I win again. Ah, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But that's okay. Um, we have more important things to discuss other than me winning, which is we are joined by a guest. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. After like four months of not doing any podcasts, we now even have a guest. We have a guest. It's amazing. Would you like to introduce our guest? Yes. Our guest is um, the very well-known Mark Escher. Um, and what can I say but say hello for now and let's just introduce himself, basically. Hey, guys. It's Mark. I've been uh, – it's my second time on the podcast. It's been a while, though. Several years. Last time oh. we talked about testing. Yeah, remember That's that? right. We, we did. Testing. Yes. I, had, I, had, I hadn't fun. forgotten. I hadn't forgotten. No, no. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, so actually, I I did have some uh, on this date because I am uh, oh. not only a guest but also a listener. So uh, I love uh, music, and so I've got some music based ones. Uh, this date, 
September 11th, 1965. Moby. I'm sure you guys are big fans of Moby, the artist. <laughs> oh, no, totally. Uh, yeah. yeah like Mark really Bops on his yeah. podcast all day long to Moby. He was born. I didn't know, though, that he was the descendant of Moby Dick, author Herman Melville, which I suppose makes sense. And on this day, Peter Tosh was killed. Reggae artist, pretty famous back in the day. Oh. Yeah. See, this is where oh, time okay. zone differences get us because it's September 12th for us. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. I forgot you are the people from tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. See, Scott Strohs would have gotten that right, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. That's a surprise contribution. Awesome. Yeah, there, there you go. go. There you go. So I've been, uh, I've been a coder since uh, 2000 or so, I suppose. And uh, here to talk with you both about Go. Excited about the language and uh, excited to talk to you guys about it. Awesome. So I'll actually just say, so people who don't know Mark Asher, few and far between, um, do you want to give a little spiel about yourself and, and, and stuff you've been doing and like just, just a little 30-second spiel on who Mark Asher is? Yeah, sure. So as I said, I've been developing for a long time. I got I started to know a lot, get to know a lot of people when I got involved uh, with a project called MX Unit, which was a cold fusion unit testing framework. And so I uh, met a lot of people, spoke at conferences, uh, read articles. Yeah, you know how it is when the more you work in open source, the more people you meet. And so that, and that was really great. And then um, did a project called CF MongoDB with Bill Shelton, who also was the founder of MX Unit and uh, worked with some a great group of people at Booz Allen for quite a while, Joe Reinhardt, Todd, uh, Todd Sharp, Scott Strohs, and some others that you guys all know. And then that was uh, 2010 to 2012. And for the last couple of years, I've been working for the United States federal government as a developer and increasingly into, uh, I hate to use the word, but increasingly into things, DevOpsy type Ooh. stuff. Yeah, a lot of automation, culture building, things like that. So that's what I'm doing now. Nice. Nice, nice. There you go. Some things about you I didn't necessarily even know. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. All right, so yes, we are gathered here today to talk about Go. Uh, it seems to be a fairly new language. There seems to be some shiny on it that people seem to be appreciating. Um, so I guess, um, how do we want to take this? So uh, why don't we, why don't we, yeah, why don't we go around the table and say, okay, what's your, what's your background with Go? What sort of experience have you got? So people have got some, some context from our positions. And um, maybe we try and we try and do a very bad rendition of what Go is on a podcast, which is always hard doing by voice. Um, so my my background with Go, um, I've been working with it on a project uh, since around the beginning of the year. Um, we we chose it for our platform for doing a lot of back end systems. We're doing a lot of REST interfaces um, that. We also integrate a lot with a lot of third parties. So we were looking at something to do a lot of incoming and outgoing messages really quickly as much as possible because um, we wanted to process our messages really fast. And we started looking at some of the speed benchmarks for Go, and, and that drove us in that direction. Um, so I've been working with Go yeah, since about the beginning of this year, actually, off and on. Um, there was a small break in there. But um, primarily on Google App Engine has been my primary environment for working with Go. Uh, so it's all been web-based REST stuff, um, working on App Engine, and that's been actually a really good fit. It's been a really good fit, but I'll get deeper into that. So that's that's my background on, on Go. Kai, what have you been up to? Um, my background is more like private, uh, playing with it on a private basis, really, realistically at this point. I've um, started to build something for controlling my light system at home with it, 
based on a Raspberry Pi because you can actually grab go and there's an ARM package that can run on the Raspberry Pis for it. Nice. Um, and then I wanted to use it to measure environmental. I mean, it's like totally, you know, it, it's all use cases where you don't have to use Go at the end of the day because it's not about the specifics of Go. I just wanted to have something to play with to learn the language. Mm-hmm. Then I ended up wanted, wanting to use it to um, measure environmental data from another piece of hardware that I built, you know, that tracks temperature and carbon monoxide and all that kind of stuff in in our place. And But I ended up using Python for that because I got like a whole bunch of pre-made libraries that I could tangle together, which was a bit mm-hmm. nicer. So pretty much from that point of view, it's, I've got to go running on one of my Raspberry Pis and I occasionally play with it and I've got an idea where I would want to use it for some upcoming Raspberry Pi project to collect signals and to send signals to the Raspberry Pi. Again, it's not anything where you have to use Go for, but, you know, it's just like little things where you can play with the language and get a bit of, bit of, a, uh, bit of a better feel for it. Cool. And Mark, what are you up to with Go these days? So I've been using it since about the same time as you, Mark, around the beginning of the year. I had a two-week vacation over the holidays at the end of December and decided I wanted to learn some new things. So I, uh, I've been interested in Go for a while and decided that was what I was going to check out because it was, um, it was new to me, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't so crazy that I couldn't grok it pretty quickly. So it, it, we'll talk about what it is, but it's in the C style of languages. It's not a, a lisp or anything like that. And it was really easy for me to pick up. And so, um, since then, uh, like Kai, I've been using it for personal stuff, uh, command line utilities. And I wrote, I rewrote two web apps in Go and I'm in the process of rewriting a third larger web app. Again, those are just personal projects though, not for work. I actually haven't used it for work at all, although I am absolutely on the lookout for places where I can. We are, we primarily use Python at work. And, um, I was, it was interesting when I, when I started investigating the language, one of the questions I had for myself is being statically typed, uh, is Go the kind of thing that can replace something like Python in terms of not just, um, ease of use and, and obviously performance, but also just, uh, like joy in programming. So. Okay. All right. We got some we got some fun questions just to discuss about that. So uh, who wants to try and take a stab at oh, <laughs> trying to explain what Go is? I'll take a crack at some of the basic properties, sort of try and set on, the context man. of it. Yeah, right. let's. So let's, let's it's uh, and I'll, I'll do it also with compare it with some other languages as well to sort of you know get. It. Sometimes it's easier to see what a thing is by comparing it to things that other people have already used. So it is a C style language. So curly braces, things like that, not a lisp. Um, it is a, it is a compiled language. So it's not, uh, not like a Python or a cold fusion that is a runtime language or runtime based language. So it's compiled. It is a statically typed language, unlike something like Python. It does have pointer semantics. Unlike, say, JavaScript or ColdFusion, so that would be, if you were coming in it from CF, that stuff might be a little weird. But I remember back when I was learning C, I had a hard time getting my head around pointers. And when I started up with Go, it was very clear to me the difference between pointer and value semantics. And so I, um, I, don't, I don't anticipate that would be hard for people to get their heads around. It, uh, although I said it's a C-style language, I'm talking primarily about syntax. It is not. It is a garbage-collected language like Java, so you don't have to do garbage collection yourself with malloc and things like that. Um, 
let's see. It is when you uh, build Go, you build a single binary, and that binary ships with the Go runtime. So uh, similar to a Java, if you were to create a jar file, for example, you've got a single binary. But unlike Java, it ships with the runtime, so you don't need the runtime on your target server. So, for example, I host my Go applications on a DigitalOcean droplet, and it does not have any special uh, configuration on it for Go. It's in, I ship the binary to it and um, just run it, just like any other binary. So that's uh, that's a, a real high-level overview. What else do we need to talk about that, um, what it is? I, I, would, I would bring up... Um and I, I like I like this analogy that people have used for Go, which is it's like um, the bastard child of Python and C, <laughs> which, which which I think is kind of apt because it's not it's not really it's not really object oriented, um, and it's not really it's not really functional either. It it does sit in that in this weird space where it looks like you're writing C code, but you have types that you can attach methods to if you want to, and you do have some Aspects of polymorphism with interfaces, but if you're looking at it from like an OR perspective, like Ruby or, or Python or um, Java, you're gonna you're gonna hit roadblocks pretty quickly because that's not really the way the language works. So one interesting question pops pops to mind. You know, can we say like Go is kind of a successor of C or C Because I wouldn't go that far personally. I would think. It's really not because it has a bunch of things. I mean, it's a system system level language, yeah. right? But it has a bunch of things like the Go routines and stuff like that that make it kind of very different from traditional C and C++ concepts. From now, I need to look up my history, but if I remember correctly, it was actually written because they wanted something other than C and C++ um, to at Google, and that was the reason they wrote Go. So whether you okay. want to say whether you want to say successor, I don't think that's probably a um, necessarily the right word. Um, I would say it's more of a um, they they had problems they were solving with C plus plus and C, and then they wanted something better or a better fit for their problems. There's also another language called D, isn't it? And I think that's supposed to be the official successor of C or C plus plus at some yeah. point, if I remember correctly. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading a transcript of a talk that Rob Pike, one of the uh, creators of Go, gave, yep. and he he did, as Kai mentioned, it's a systems level language, and they thought that they would attract C plus plus developers and C developers, and what they found mm. instead was was that it was the Python and the Ruby developers who were really excited about the language, and I wonder, uh, I wonder if part of that is simply that although it is a statically typed language, when you look at the language, it doesn't feel unlike Java, for example, it doesn't feel like the type system gets in your way, or at least it hasn't felt that way to me. We'll have an argument about that, but that's okay. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Totally gone blank. So, um, yeah, my brain's just falling over. Somebody else talk. <laughs> Early in my morning, it's just gone. Well, I guess we could talk for a couple of seconds about the genesis of the language. So it comes out of Google. We yep. kind of mentioned that. So it comes out of Google uh, with from some guys who have deep history in uh, Unix, Plan 9. Rob Pike uh, wrote um, New Squeak, the language, and he, he has said that it's kind of uh, came out of that style. And uh, it was it was they built it because they were struggling with uh, compilation times, et cetera, for goes or for uh, Google's C and C++ code. And they they 
were increasingly seeing the the joy during out of what they were doing, and so they wrote it to try and solve that problem. And it turns out that um, it, it started to get pretty high adoption. And uh, it's built. Uh, one of the things that are pretty clear to mention is it is definitely built for teams. So it's built for lots of people working on yep. large code bases. And the interesting thing to me is that although it was built for that, I found it quite quite good to use for single person small applications as well as for larger ones. Mm. I, I definitely think it's probably worth noting that it's a very opinionated language. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, clearly the people who wrote it have a clear um, mental direction on what's going on. It comes with a with a code formatter out of the box. It's very much a, this is the way your code should look. You should format it this way. If it doesn't look this way, it might not even run because there's certain. If you try and put braces on the next line, for example, it just says no. No, you can't do that. Um, it's got stuff in it like if you don't use a variable, it won't compile. Things like that. So it is definitely a very opinionated language. I would say for me, it took a while to get my headspace around. Um, it was sort of like. As long as you write Go in the Go way, you tend to be a very happy person. But if you try and shoehorn a different way into Go, it tends to kind of fight you. It's not It's not only the language. It's also the whole infrastructure set up around it, you know, the way how you set up a project yes. and how you set up your packages. It's pretty much – I don't want to say it's prescribed, but, you know, if again, if you don't follow the way the Go team recommends – you are in for some pain, basically, and some IDEs and some IDE plugins had to experience that, you know, because yep. they didn't provide that structure that makes it really easy for Go to find packages and do all that stuff it does. Um, and it's also worth noting there's a lot of companies that are using Go uh, right now. I'm just looking at a list because of Wikipedia, but um, definitely ones I've seen. Um, Google, obviously, Dropbox, uh, Cloudflare, SoundCloud. Uh, those are probably some big ones. Juju, which is a, a system by Canonical, I know Canonical's using it. I know um, one of the guys working on that. Um, yeah, Docker is another big example. Um, so there's definitely a lot of people behind it in that way. I've, I've di- actually the funny thing you mentioned. Um, you mentioned Ruby and Python people going to go. The one I've seen the most is I've seen the progression of Ruby people going to Node, and then Node people who used to be Ruby programmers going to go. <laughs> I've seen that a lot. Mark, you mentioned that Go is a is a, an opinionated language. It's also a really tight, simple language. There's not yes. a lot of actually. There's I guess there's practically no sugar in this language yes. at all. It's, that is uh, very true. That it's like a true. workman's language. And and some people uh, consider it almost condescending. So and <laughs> let, let me give you let me give you a, a line from the FAQ here. So in the in the golang.org FAQ. Um, does Go have a ternary form? So a ternary operator, you know, the yep. question mark, uh, that colon. Uh, there is no ternary form in Go. You may use the following to achieve the same result. And then the code block is an if-else statement. Yep. And you see this kind of thing <laughs> all throughout. So um, these they they have strong opinions, and those opinions come through in the language. I, if you listen to those guys who build it talk about it, uh, basically if, they, uh, if the three main developers can't figure out uh, – why a, f- a feature should be in that language, it doesn't get in the language. And you definitely see that result. For example, something simple that you would think every language would have is a set type. There is no set type in the language. Now, you can go find it in uh, packages quite easily, you know, open source packages and things, but by, but just baked in, it doesn't have it. But interestingly enough, actually, as, as that sort of segues into an interesting point, there are a lot of very good things in the core packages, um, the, the things that come to mind for me immediately because that's what I'm working with is, is it has an incredibly robust HTTP packages. 
you know, setting up servers, sending and receiving incoming HTTP requests, marshalling JSON, stuff like that, all comes baked in, and they're all really, really, really good. Um, so there's, there is a lot to the core library that it's not like overwhelming like Java is. Um, but it, it definitely comes with things that you can use right out of the box to get up and running and doing stuff that's, uh, that's actually quite impressive, like real practical things. I think that's very yeah, important. Absolutely. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was impressed with was just how, how much I enjoyed writing web app, well, for the most part, writing web applications <laughs> with it when it was built or at least built primarily as a systems language. Sorry, Kai, you were going to say something. I think we keep interrupting you. Um, yeah, I was just saying, like, you know, also keep in mind that this is, like, the version of one of the language at this point, right? It's, like, 1.1 currently out there. 1.3. Really? Yep. Oh, I haven't, I totally have missed that, actually. I thought it was on 1.1 the whole time. Um, so, but, you know, in general, when we look at the 1.x release, they probably will add further things to the core language over time, you know, and right now it's not as verbose and bloaty and overwhelming as Java is, but, you know, obviously that might change in the future, you never know. Because Java back then, I'd, in version, I'd be surprised version 1 was really quite small. Sort of bloaty. That's, I mean, it seems very counter to their um, whole ethos of the language. Um, it seems to be like that's really what they're trying not to do. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the arguments you see on the mailing list are, hey, we want this feature, and they're like, no. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, so that would be interesting to see. But I I, I, I mean, in, in from version, I think, what, 1.1 to 1.3, we haven't seen a huge number of new features. I think we've seen object balls, and that's about it. Yeah, they made a bunch of changes to the compilers, probably. Yeah, I think, exactly. At that end. Um, Mark, you mentioned a bit ago that it's not quite object-oriented and not quite functional. Can you yeah. talk about what... What goes object orientation looks like, though, and what its uh, functional nature looks like? Okay, yeah, no, no, no. Um, so you can actually, it's, it's probably if, if uh, um, in some ways you could kind of almost relate it to JavaScript, um, if people wanted to, to look at it that way, but um, with much less uh, OO capabilities, much JavaScript has it, but it kind of works in the same way. In that, well, first of all, functions are first class citizens. So you can pass them around, you can create them on the fly, you can do closures, you can do all that sort of fun stuff. Um, generally, if you're writing, they call them packages, so it, um, yeah, then, um, uh, or namespace or whatever you're used to calling them. But once you're in a package, you tend to write functions that are standalone. They don't necessarily hook into any particular class or object. Um, and they can do whatever you want, and that's all great. Um, and But you can have types, and types are kind of interesting in that types can be basically, uh, you can have what they call struct types, which are basically, it's a type that has properties. Um, but you can also have types that are bytes or ints or particular types of maps. So like because it's statically typed, you might specify a type for a map that you use a lot, let's say a map with a string key and an int. Um, and any of those types you can attach methods to. Um, those methods can change the data inside things, or they can just expose it and do stuff with it. Um, but in terms of, you know, would you write a service layer with Go, or would you write... Um, there have some people who've done uh, uh, dependency injection, but I don't know if I'm that much of a fan of it in Go. But you wouldn't... You, it doesn't really feel that way in that you'd write complex object-oriented systems with it. 
Um, it does have an interesting form of polymorphism. They have what they call interfaces, uh, which, which look on the surface very much like any other interface you've seen. You set up a interface, you say what methods it has. Um, but the interesting thing about it is Go has a more of a, a conventional style with interfaces. So basically, as long as a type has the methods of that interface, then it's just assumed that it's, it's basically it implements that interface. You don't have to be explicit about it, which is kind of neat. I found that really weird at the beginning. That was one of those things, those implicit interface yeah. implementations. It's like, oh, okay, I don't have to do that. And now I use those X methods and yep. all of a sudden it is actually implementing the thing. Um, it's, you're right. It's kind of nice. What I also would say is the type system of Go with, you know, the struct types and that whole setup basically yep. not having classes. It reminds me a lot of, Oh, those bare bone, you know, like old school languages that we learned at uni. I mean, at least at my time, I did like, you know, Modular 2, mm. which is like a variant of Pascal, basically. And that had a very similar type system where you had to pretty much define like algebraic types with properties. And then you exported and imported certain parts of those types and, you know, build like connections between those types. And Go, from that regard, reminds me quite a bit of, you know, how that used to work. Mm. This is why I kind of, I kind of come back to that. Like I said, it's like the bastard child of C and Python. You know, you've got, you've got your global functions, much like you have C, but you also have uh, first-class citizen functions, kind of like you do in Python, um, and, and member functions that, that kind of work kind of similar, kind of similarly. I'm not a Python expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, I think the, the one thing I find difficult with the way they do interfaces is that it, discoverability is tricky um, because they're implicit uh, they're implicit implementations of interfaces if you're trying to find you know in a particular package implementations of an interface it can be difficult because you have to go looking for particular methods and make sure they're all there um, but otherwise in terms of like if you're in the code writing it it can be quite nice I guess I mean if you want to when you talk about that findability, do you mean like looking at other people's code in a package, for example, and see how it's structured? Or yeah, or well, if I'm working with um, HTTP, sometimes I need a, I think an IO reader, for example, and if I if I need to find an IO reader for some particular, you know, what, uh, where, how do I find implementations of IO reader so I can do something like a, a file read or something like that? Okay, I'm like, I'll go look in the file package because that's where it normally is. But well, yeah, I have to find the right, I have to find the methods on it, and that can be that can be annoying, kind of. You kind of have to remember where things are, um, or just Google it, which is fine. You can do it. You can get there, but um, I find that. It's not it's not nearly as explicit to say in Java where you can just go Java doc. Oh, there's all my there's all my implementations. Boom, 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 yeah. done. Yeah. Um, I think there's some stuff work on that with some static analysis in GoDoc that helps with that. Um, in the 1.3, off the top of my head, I have to go another look. Um, at the moment, I'm working on GAE, so I'm kind of stuck on 1.2.1 at the moment. Do you add it's, anything to go on, Mark? Yeah, I was going to say. Do you want to I was going to say that you mentioned GoDoc. We actually didn't talk about that before. So GoDoc is one of a number of tools that ships with True. Go when you install it. Uh, so, which are nice. These these different things that ship with it. Um, and basically, what you do there is you type uh, what is it? Go tool. Go. You can just go GoDoc. It works. Or GoDoc. And then uh, if you type Go Tool, it'll list what different types of what different tools ship with it. So, for example, if you want to do the tour, if you want to do a Go Vet, which is sort of like a linter type deal on your code, uh, you can do code coverage, things like that, uh, dump out objects. So. 
good stuff. Um, we should probably talk about error handling because that's also uh, a bit different oh, yeah. than what uh, people might be used to. Um, so normally, so so uh, there's, there's two things I think are probably worth covering in that. One of which is uh, functions can return multiple arguments in Go. Um, it's it's worth noting, and it, it normally the pattern is, is what often happens if if something could cause an error, you actually return the return value comma, and then you return an error value. So you actually tend to write these if-else statements where you're checking to see if that error value is nil. So you don't have exceptions like you do in a lot of other languages that bubble up. You have an actual error object um, that you need to check all the way through, or possibly bubble up, you can return again. Um, that, for me, took a while to get used to. Uh, it, it felt very verbose, and sometimes it still feels very verbose. Um, there, from everything I've read and the arguments I've seen, it's, it's it, again, it's go, it's about expressiveness and... Um, being very explicit about what's happening in your code and making sure you handle all the errors. Um, and also when you start getting into the concurrency stuff we go, we should probably talk about too. Um, it's, it, yeah, I would say the, the idea is it's cleaner there. Um, I, I can see where they're saying that. And I think for the type system, it makes a lot of sense as well. Um, but it, it is something different. Um, they also have some things called panics, which is basically everything blows up, which you can catch in, in a whole different way. But, um, but the error handling really is you, you, you're doing a lot of, okay, let's run this method. I'm going to get back an error and a value. Let me check my error. Okay, my error is nil, so that's fine. Everything's okay, and I can continue on from there. Um, and that, that, How I that, tried to think of this was, you know, yeah. you guys, when you used to write, when you would write Java, and you would have a gigantic try block, and then down in the catch, you would catch five different exception types, uh, yeah. if you were like me in writing, writing horrible Java. So, and then inside <laughs> of each specific exception type, you'd have some, well, you might have custom handling for each of those. You might do the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, and then, so that on, on one side, look at that kind of code. And then when you look at Go, or at least when I look at the Go that I've been writing, it forces you to deal with those specific errors at the time that yes, they might be totally. issued. So, yeah. so instead of try whole bunch code catch, it's more like uh, something comma error equals and then You've got your your function that you run, and then you say if error not equals nil, do this else, and yep. or you keep moving on. Um, I find I find with <laughs> certain levels of abstraction, you can kind of hide some of it away. Not hide some of it away, but get rid of some of the verboseness. You know, if you you can bubble up things that need to bubble up. But um, sorry, Kai, you're going to say something. I was just thinking, like the the way how they handle errors probably is kind of nice for unit testing specifically, because you actually. Mm. You know, you can actually look at the error right right away at your function or unit level, essentially, and deal with it because you get like you don't get like that exception an exception happening or something like that. You need to deal with. You actually get that response from the function call right away, like that. It the, to what I say, I I was just browsing the FAQ recently, and they talk about that specifically and how Go's Go built-in unit testing package does not have assertions, which um, you, we've been doing unit testing for years. That's just weird because yeah. that's, that's how you test. And it doesn't have assertions, and one of the things it says in there is uh, to what Kai's saying is if, if you've got – let's say you're doing like, um, like a data-driven type test. You've got multiple inputs, and you want to test each one of them. And in typical unit testing, the first one, it would fail fast, and you don't know what's going to happen with my next set of inputs. And with Go, it makes it really easy to test them all and then fail at the end because it doesn't have that kind of uh, throw the error and then the whole the whole uh, test mm. method mm. fails. Mm. Mm. Cool. 
Um, yeah, we should also probably talk about concurrency because that's probably the, the other big thing that comes and go. Um, how are we going to explain this in a podcast? So, um, Mark, you, you've got a lot of experience working with Java executives. <laughs> you want to tackle this one? Sure. So, no, like I, I've been doing this since, just like you, since January. So I'm going to get a whole bunch of this probably wrong, but I'll, I'll, so that means I'm going to speak at such a high level that I can not get any details wrong. So it's based <laughs> on, uh, communicating sequential processes. So yep. the, I think the, the whore paper that that was written on are based on is, I don't know, 30, 40 years old, something like this. Uh, so it's got a lot of history. And so the idea here is that it uses something called channels. And so, Un- or similar, I suppose, to Java, if you've ever, or, or it, for the cold fusion folks listening, if you've done like a CF thread and it just automatically spins, spawns out a thing, um, go to, to spawn a new process, you would do the keyword go space and then some function. And that would go, go run in its own process space. The interesting thing here is that go manages that all on your behalf, the go runtime. And so it does not, uh, it does not associate a thread with an operating system thread, for example. So Go manages uh, Go manages how the operating system deals with the threads that go that, or the the processes rather that Go spawns. In that sense, Go has complete control over things like blocking, etc. And so, in terms of um, what that means, I suppose, is that unlike in Java land where the big, the big problem with concurrency is always mutability. Mm-hmm. And the thing that Go helps you do is write safe concurrent code as opposed to having to uh, spend a whole lot of your brain power worrying about locking, uh, mutexes, things like that. Go helps you do it correctly. Uh, one of the ways, so the way that it does that is via this notion of channels. And so channels are, a way of sharing information amongst multiple processes. I guess that's the, the simplest way mm. to put it. Um, I'll expand on that a little. So, yeah, so you, you're talking about go routines. Um, so, um, so that's how you get you get your uh, your concurrency. Um, yeah, which are which are quite easy to use, and you can you just pass functions to them, and they get run on their own their own process. Uh, quite often, on their own green thread. Anyone's familiar with that term so it's kind of a lightweight thread right a lightweight thread yeah so it's not a full system operating system thread it basically works if anyone's worked with node very similarly it sort of puts it on an event stack and then it can see whether it needs to do anything behind the scenes um but it could have multiple system threads behind it too go manages that process um but yeah i think yeah you were talking about channels and i think it's almost uh, the the best analogy i've heard for uh, channels is like it's a conveyor belt or like a queue um, and that's how you communicate between processes. So in one Go routine, you put something on the queue, and another Go routine could then pull it off when it was ready. Uh, and that's how you send information between services. Or, or you mm-hmm. might be saying, you know, I'm going to have a Go routine that's running on a whole other thread, and then when I'm done, I'll put something on a queue. And then I'll have the, the main thread for my pro- program will be waiting for that, and it'll stop and wait, you know, until, until I get something off. Uh, and so you can do very, you can do very complicated concurrent process management using channels, um, quite easily and quite, um, elegantly. Um, I'm actually a really huge fan of CSP for doing concurrency. Um, I've used, sim- I've used it in here and go and, and I've talked about it a lot in the enclosure as well in the core async project. And I, th- I think it, it makes concurrency really simple and easy to use. 
Yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, channels help you with manage or automatically managing those blocks. And you, you really, from what I've seen, you hardly ever need to use like locks or yeah. some check with some crazy conditions if you can do something or not. Yep. It's kind of out of the box, really. Yeah, Go does give you those things. It does have locks. It has it has, a, it has a sync keyword as well as a sync construct or something yeah, like that. Right? Yeah, it's got a whole sync package. So you've got uh, locks, read write locks, mutexes. Um, yeah. it, you've got a few other things. You've got things called weight groups, which are actually really interesting um, for concurrency as well. Um, we'll probably not go too deep into those, but they're actually really cool if anyone wants to dig into them. Um, so you can do blocking operations with those as well. And then there's a whole bunch of atomic low-level operations you can hack out on as well. But, yeah, the vast majority of the time will be spent in Go routines and channels. I have a quick so question. I, uh, oh, sorry. Just no, go, go ahead. No, go ahead, go. Okay. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> totally, totally random sidetrack. Um, I was just thinking about a potential use case for Go, and I was wondering if you guys know of any library that's doing it. You know, because of the Go routines and channels set up, it would be actually, or it is really well suited for parallel computing of certain certain things, right? Yep. Particularly, let's say, in the machine learning space. Yep. I'm just thinking, like, have people written, like, good libraries to do, you know, matrix calculations and stuff like that? Have you guys seen anything? So I started something on GitHub just the other day that a friend of mine did about oh, doing okay. matrix calculations in Go. Um, I haven't looked at it to see whether it's any good or not. Okay. So maybe we can dig that out a bit later and put it into the podcast notes or something like that. That would be interesting. Because usually when I do like those calculations, I use MATLAB, MATLAB or Octave for that. Yep. But they have usually performance limitations when it comes to actual runtime systems and distributing them. They are really good for doing the academic grunt work, like figuring out a process. But then when you want to run something in production, Usually, it's not the right choice to 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 go with. Oh, I actually lied. I know he did start it, though. It wasn't me. I can find it there. Okay. Probably. <laughs> there, there is a library. I'll find it at some other point. Um, I don't know how good it is. Okay. Interesting. So, up to you, Mark. A couple Sorry. other things. Yeah, a couple other things about that is that uh. So they, there's a line that the Go folks tried out all the time. It's go, don't communicate by sharing memory, share memory by communicating. And I don't, I don't know how you guys when, if you remember when CF thread came out back in CF8, I think it was. And so the way you would uh, have, you'd spin up multiple threads and sometimes those threads would need to communicate with one another. And so you did that usually by sharing like a globally scoped, um, uh, data structure like a, like application dot sum struct or something that like that. Yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. remember that yeah. horrible stuff? So yeah. that right there is the anti pattern. And yeah, you don't want to be doing Go, that. Yeah, you don't want to be doing that. And Go does Go does not make it easy to do that. In Go, you use these channels in order. So you don't you don't pass data structures to threads. Your threads, for lack of a better word, communicate with one another by passing data back and forth across these conveyor conveyor yeah. belts. Yeah. It's, uh, it almost, and again, it almost harkens back to, uh, I hate to harken back to functional programming, but it, it's that whole idea that state's kind of bad. Um, it's, and then that's especially true when you're doing concurrent programming. Because state, state's bad because it can move under your feet. So one other thread could be changing something on another piece of thread. And that means things are very unpredictable. And channels give you a nice, clear way of making that messages go around in a, to, to pass around a state that you know won't change under your feet. 
if you put something in a channel, then you're like, okay, this is this is going to stay still. This is cool, um, and that's really important. Yeah, that's really important. All right, so let's. Let, I think that's a, a good summary. Um, we've sort of touched on this a bit, but uh, sort of why don't we go into like, what do you, why why do you let go? Like, what's what are maybe even just like a three favorite features sort of thing? Like, what's uh, what's your what's your what's your big your big wins with Go? What do you really like about it? So from my point of view, it's the concurrency. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other really big thing is that you can kind of really successfully write platform independent code. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's some, I mean, other languages kind of promise that all the time, you know, but I can write something on my Mac. You get that, will, that will work. I get a binary. That's fine. Mm. But I can use pretty much exactly the same source code and compile it on my Raspberry Pi and I have the same binary and it works. Yeah. And, you know, like Java promises that for years, but it doesn't really fully deliver on that. Mm. I mean, C++ and C probably would as well to a certain extent, but that's kind of not the space I'm usually in. You know, like it's nice to get like something you can run on pretty much anywhere. Right away, if you compile it for that platform, that's kind yeah. of really a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what would, I would probably say my biggest things: um, speed is probably the, the number one, uh, both of compilation and of, uh, of execution. Um, there's, a, there's a common joke actually where it, <laughs> with Go, where it's, someone's new to Go and they said, "I've compiled this language and it did nothing and right away." So what, what happened? That, that actually means it compiled. And it compiled successfully. <laughs> um, it's that fast that it's normally compiling like in milliseconds. And it normally doesn't, if it doesn't output anything, then you're fine and you're ready to go. And a lot of people, when they first do it, they're just like, I don't know what happened. That's normally it takes compilation ages. Um, so speed is definitely number one. I, I agree on the concurrency front. Um, and I, yeah, I also go with shipping a binary. Being able to just pass around a binary with no runtime is actually really nice. Um, I'll, I'll actually kind of admit I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Go at some times. Um, I would say I, I use the benefits that the benefits outweigh the, the I don't say about concerns, but the, uh, the the things I hit in the syntax language. I like a bit more of an expressive syntax in my language, but the uh, the benefits outweigh any of those aspects. Um, and that's that's probably my number one things. But we'll get into what we don't like about Go in a minute. So I'll I'll certainly echo all of those things, and I'll add some new ones here. I I, uh, let's see. One of the things I've noticed when I sit with other people and talk to them about Go and I show them some code is that to a person, they discuss how easy it is to read Go code. That's very true. And so mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. And I, I think that's because of its abs, its tight focus and its absence of sugar. It's not the kind of language, like unlike Python where you've got uh, list comprehensions, generators, things like that, and you look yeah. at closure code. And to me, you, some of the closure code I read is extremely expressive and tight and also uh, perhaps inscrutable to me. Um, Go code is just easy to read. Some people don't like that simplicity. Like, oh, that takes me five lines to do when I could do it in one really crazy line of closure. Yeah. Um, but, but a year yeah. from now, I will appreciate that verbosity, I think. Yeah, I agree. Another, another thing I like about Go is the community. It's fantastic people. So I spent time hanging out on the Slack channel, gophers.slack.com, similar to IRC kind of thing. Uh, really helpful people, not um, not a lot of ego or attitude or anything like that. So the community in general has been fantastic to learn from, I think. 
Um, I just want to um, expand on a point that you made there about how easy it is to read Go. One of the great ways to learn Go uh, or, or find examples of Go is in the standard library. The standard oh, library absolutely. is all written in standard Go. It's nothing special. Having looked at other languages' standard libraries, and you, sometimes you just find undocumented features or highly complex code that's really hard to follow. Nah, you can open up any standard library package in Go and just be like, oh, so that's how they do net HTTP. Cool. It's... <laughs> I have an interesting question for you guys. Would you think that at some point we are actually going to see Go on the JVM? Oh, someone will do it. <laughs> I know there is like um, someone will do know, it. A, a really old project called JGo or something like that that yeah. kind of was abandoned two years ago where someone tried to do that. But, but you know, I'm all... Well, I mean, everything runs on the JVM nowadays, right? Like, it's it's the thing to do if you if you want to be cool, you need to be a JVM language. And to be fair, for some languages, I don't know if that's you know, true. There's a lot of people who don't like the JVM, and that's one of the reasons that drew them to Go. Yeah, but you know, then you look at, for example, Ruby, right? And how many people use JRuby instead of like the normal Ruby? But the vast majority use the normal Ruby, and a lot will actually rail against JRuby, which I yeah, think is unfair yeah. on the platform. But um, yeah, no, but those people are also using JRuby because it's a lot faster. Exactly, yeah. yes. And then, Go doesn't you know, suffer that problem. That is true. That is true. And I mean, in the in Python, for example, there is Jython, but Which, that's just tiny compared to actually yeah, native I don't Python. Know. I don't even know how well that's even supported. I mean, it's it's supported, but I think they're, they're like versions yeah, behind. They're, they're on 2.7 or 2.8 currently, yeah. Yeah. So... I disagree with your point that the cool kids have to run on the JVM. As much as I like the JVM, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a huge That was JVM one of the reasons I picked Go when I was deciding on a new language to pick up was because I wanted to be off of the JVM. Jeez. Oops. What was that? that? <laughs> That's me. My fire alarms are going off. Oh, my geez. wife's cooking. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> well, that's a first in this podcast. Unbelievable. <laughs> cool. Hey, I'm bringing the excitement. Wonderful. All right. My, now my dog's barking. I think she actually heard that. I think, I, I honestly, I think she heard that. Oh, God. There you go. A fire alarm half a world away sets off a dog. Yeah. Apologies. That's all right. <laughs> Sorry, you were going to say something about the JVM and why you were letting go? Well, just because I wanted to get off of it and see uh, what other what other runtimes are out there. Okay. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's an interesting question. Before you guys were looking at Go, were you looking at any other languages? Um, there are other languages that are statically compiled, like that are type languages that are that are statically compiled. Um, did you look at anything else, or was it were you just like, oh no, let's look at Go? Uh, for me, it was more like I wanted to, you know, look at another language to play with, and I came across Go because it was on my list of languages for quite a long time. And I just started to play with it, really, without, you know, any knowing much about it and the pros and cons of the language. I just wanted to, you know, have something to tinker with, really. Yeah, same here. Same as Scott. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I started using Go primarily because we looked at it for work, and so just started running with it because of that. Um, and it had it had some shiny on it, which was good, so there was a lot of excitement about it. But some of the – I mean, you could you could look at, say, Rust or even Haskell – for, for certain things, um, but obviously it's a, there seem to be a much smaller footprint. Um, so like, I have a que- I have a question for you, Mark, because you, you used to do quite a bit of closure as well, right? Like uh, I did a lot for my fun for fun. We we looked at closure for some stuff for work, but um, the platform we were using 
didn't end up working out, so we ended up dumping it. Ah, all right. Cool. That, that was pretty much the reason. It, okay, uh, fair I, enough. I, I, I love but you it. did write your game engine on it. Yes, yes, yes. And actually, it's got a lot of popularity, which has been really cool. So I've got a little open source project. Um, it's got like 60 or 70 stars on it on GitHub now. I'm actually it just exploded the other week. Um, and I, I, yeah, in my free time, I write a lot of closure because I, I do. I um, I love Lisp. I love the as you talked about again the conciseness and the expressiveness and the, the I like the elegance of closure. Um, but you're right. Sometimes you do come back on your own code and you go, "How did that work? Why is that doing that?" Um, and if you don't sort of memorize a lot of the core functions of closure, you 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 sort of stuck staring at a piece of Lisp going. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, look, I like working with Go. Um, well, why don't we Why don't we get into this? What What don't we like about Go? Which I always think is an interesting question to ask. Um, uh, for me, so. sometimes sometimes the verbosity of it I find frustrating. <laughs> I find I'm typing a lot just to get to a, a simple place. Um, you know, and while I can abstract certain things away, um, sometimes, yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm just doing another handler. You know, it just becomes, you just kind of switch off doing that. And that, I find that somewhat frustrating at times, um, but it, it has its benefits. Um, I think for me, actually, sometimes I rail a bit against the type system, more so, um, and, and it's a very controversial point in Go, more so probably because of the lack of generics than anything else. Mm. If it had generics or, or some some version thereof, um, I would I would rail against it less. Um, reason being, so there's a type system if people aren't used to Go that is very strict, which is great, no problem there. But if you wanted to do, um, if you were talking about sets, for example, you're talking about that. So if you wanted to have a set that was generic that anyone could use, the problem with that is is you have to use what they call an interface curly bracket, curly bracket, which basically says you can pass anything into me. And that's all good. I can pass anything to that set implementation. The problem I have is, is when I get stuff out, it doesn't know what type it is. And at mm. that point, I need to runtime cast. And that's dangerous. Because if I runtime cast and I get back the wrong, the wrong type of object, um, and I don't handle that properly, that's when panic's going to occur. That's the, that's the real runtime. Hey, something's gone horribly, horribly wrong. I'm going to explode now. And you don't get any safety around that. You don't get the safety of the type system, which is what you want with Go. Um, and so anything like generic collections or generic ma- management of collections, say if you want to do like map or reduce implementations or anything like that, um, you're either looking at doing a lot of runtime typecasting, which you can do, you know, it's not the end of the world, but you lose that, that safety, or you're looking at using the reflection package, which is much, 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 much slower than, the, than anything else. Um, the happy middle ground I've found is there's a package called Gen that will actually generate uh, implementations of a lot of things like sets as well as like uh, map and reduce and things like that for types mm-hmm. um, so that you can you basically get generic like functionality with code generation and that actually works quite well I quite like it um, it's a little bit tricky to extend if you want your own stuff um, and it'll throw off your code coverage in your tests because suddenly you have these huge wads of code that aren't tested because they're generated um, but other than that it, it works pretty well but that's that's probably my big thing that, that I can complain about with go Fair enough. I I tend when I'm writing when I'm writing collections, I tend simply to stick with strict types. So mm-hmm. I, I haven't needed I haven't needed generics uh, when I was a, obviously when I was a Java programmer, I used them all over the place. Uh, I guess uh, maybe I'm just writing very simple programs at this point. Well, I, but so I far, that, back to that it has like, been a problem. Yeah, you end up writing every time you want to do something like just total something up in a 
in a you know in a in a collection, you're writing another for loop, and so you have to test mm-hmm. that for loop. Like it it's it's just you 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 know I I have this what did I, I think I actually wrote it on Twitter at some point, but it's like I've gone from having MapReduce in about half a dozen languages, which makes me feel like I can do anything with the world, to having a for loop, which makes me feel like I have a for loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know, like I have this huge lever that can move the world. If I, I always said like if I have a big enough map and reduce, I could move mountains. You know, and now I've gone. I've got a for loop, which means I have a wrench, which means I can fix things. Um, and and it feels it feels less powerful. Um, there are sort of ways around it, but it's that sort of I, I, I struggle with that sometimes personally. That's probably more I made in the language, but I find that a little frustrating. You and lots of other people, if you go Google. That is true. Uh, you know, Golang, uh, Golang collection generics. You'll find all manner of internet yeah. hate. And, and I'm not saying generics are the right, definitely the right answer. Um, but something in that vein, um, yeah, would, would would make me feel. If that was there, I probably wouldn't complain too much. About go. Other than it's not always. What about you, Kai? Okay. <sighs> There's not really not much I strongly dislike. I, you know, I don't miss generics at all because I think they bloat and complicate a language. More often than than not, and again, I'm like you, Mark. You know, I'm probably not writing highly complex Go code that I would need them at that point. Um, I don't know maybe that changes at some point. I don't know. The other thing I find kind of weird still is that Go doesn't really do any implicit numeric um, conversions. No, I mean that's like really so deliberately yeah I totally I, you know I totally yeah. agree but it's just something weird I constantly run into little issues where I expect that to magically work and then it doesn't and you no, have you're to, trying to yeah. add ins to floats or something and just goes, yeah, yeah. And, and then you have to fix it basically it's yeah, like yeah. Oh, God, really yeah. this again yeah so that's kind of weird but that's more like a you know it's a, it's a language feature obviously so that's that's fine I don't say I don't want to say I dislike it it's just something that takes me quite a while to get used to let's talk package constantly. management Actually, Mark, before we talk about that, there's one okay. thing that – so I definitely have at least one thing that drives me nuts about Go, and that is uh, as, mu- as strong as the HTTP packages, etc. the template package, so HTML templates, oh, and those are the kinds of things yeah. you need for building, for building uh, websites. The template package is – it's not too bad. It's got a decent templating language. It's okay. Um, I can live with it. That's not the thing I don't like. The thing I nope. don't like are these things called funk maps. So basically, inside oh. of templates, you know, like if you're writing CFML and you're, you've, you've got your, uh, your HTML and it's got CFML sprinkled, th- sprinkled throughout it and you can do anything in that, in your, uh, CFML templates, you know, your, your, mm. the things that are generating HTML, et cetera, that you could do anywhere else. All the, the entire language is available to you. Well, in, when you're writing Go and if you're writing HTML templates, which are, which are nice, um, you don't have everything available to you. You don't even have necessarily the custom formatter functions that you might have written. So let's say you need on a web page to format a date. Well, you probably then have to write uh, a format function. And in order to, you, and then you are responsible for getting that function into, into your the template. template. Yeah. yeah. And, and so for me, and the way you do that is with these things called funk maps. And that is basically, uh, you say inside of this funk map, this function name, like format date, uh, it, it is, equates to, um, this function here that I called format date or whatever. And so it's a lot of duplication. And I have to imagine that over time in a pretty large web app, these, this would get completely out of control. 
it provides a very clear separation, though, which is, you know, it does. a it good does. thing. It's kind of, you know, in, in CFML, it's getting messy in a certain way as well, because all of a sudden, you know, functions appear in your template that are somewhere defined in your model code or in your yeah. controllers or wherever people throw them, basically, and they are just, th- just there. With those function maps, at least you have to explicitly say, yeah, I want this function to be available in my template. But on the other hand, I totally agree. You know, if you, let's do, if you, let's say do a, a massive scale web app, that could be well, that's painful. A, that almost falls back on sort of arguments to logicless templates and things like that, which, um, you know, look at mustache, look at handlebars, even to, you know, like liquid and, and all those sort of guys, it sort of falls and it seems to fall in that realm from what you're saying. I haven't played with the, the template stuff too much. Um, I've just sort of looked at it, but it, it does seem to fall into that realm of people uh, rebelling against what you've kind of been saying, which is, oh, oh God, I can put any code I want into my views. That's not necessarily a good thing. So let's, let's strongly limit what what's possible mm-hmm. there. Um, I have heard people complaining about the, H, the standard HTML views with Go and how much they hate them, um, mainly for completely other reasons. <laughs> but um, I have seen in um, implementations, I think it was Liquid, um, there's probably some other ones, probably Mustache or Handlebars um, in Go, which probably doesn't solve your problems because you'll still need to pass in functions in some way, shape or form if you want to do that sort of uh, formatting of data. Um, but I think it, it probably comes more from the, the school of thought that says your data should be formatted before it gets down there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's a fair so point. It yeah. does move. Yeah. It, that's totally true. It moves the. It moves where that stuff gets done up yeah. out of the templates and into some other place. And if you're coming from other web-based technologies, that can be kind of weird. I actually think problems like this are probably going to be irrelevant in a couple of years anyway, as RESTful APIs and and a separation of mm. entire JavaScript apps that are using something like Go for just a RESTful API will become the norm if it's not yep. already. So now can we talk about package management? Oh yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> So that I like, should be like a ding, like a, a boxing bell. Yeah, or yeah. So, so I like to refer to it as the choose your own adventure of how you want to man- do, manage your packages. There is no one true way. There is only the way that you choose to go. So, so, so describe go the problem. So, okay. Tell us the problem. All right. So, by default, uh, Go has a very simple package management system, which, by anyone listening, probably isn't surprising because everything else is simple. It has Go Get. And you point, uh, you basically say, hey, uh, I've got these, these, you've got the URLs to your packages in your code, and you're like, go get, you know, um, this package which is over here on GitHub, and this package over here which is on Mercurial, and this package over here which is on SVN, and it goes and it gets the latest version, and it puts it in your Go path, which is basically where your Go code is stored, and you're off to go. And on face value, you're like, sweet, that's really easy. I just pointed at a GitHub repository, and it pulls stuff down, and I can use it. Awesome. Um, <laughs> And then you start working in teams, and suddenly you have a different version to your friend over there. And um, your continuous integration server has a different version to the one you deployed, and because commits change on repositories, and that gets scary and bad. Um, and there, there are a whole bunch of different ways of solving this problem. Um, but that's that's the problem in a nutshell. So it, it comes from, and there's probably some context is useful. Um, it, Go comes from Google. Google constantly works off the head of their SVN branch, always. Um, well, I don't know if it's SVN. I don't know what – I can't remember what they're using internally. It's something some, – whatever their source control is, they use they use the head of that constantly from, from everything I've read and been told. So for them, it's fine. 
because they're always working off head, so all tests need to run off head, and what gets deployed is from head, so everyone's running on the same code base. Unfortunately, that doesn't work for the rest of us. Um, anything, anyone want to add anything to the problems for that? Oh, yeah, that sounds accurate. Yeah. yeah. That's about it. <laughs> that's about it. So there are 20 different ways that people solve this problem. Um, from uh, one, one way that some people I know, the, the continuous integration server is the one true master. It builds binaries, and that's what gets shipped. So if continuous integration server passes, then that's all good, and it doesn't matter if you know head's changed. That's where if things fail, they're going to fail. Um we're using a package called GPM, which I actually forked and hacked a little bit for, for Google App Engine. But uh, what that does is it lets you write a, uh, a GoDepths file, which basically you can specify the repository and then a hash for what hash you want to use. And that keeps that locked down for everyone. Um, and that's worked really well for us. Uh, haven't had any problems with that so far. It's actually been really nice. Um, what about you guys? Go package management is, is, is the... Uh, the big fights like VI and Emacs and Golan. I didn't really have to deal with that issue a lot because I just code for myself little projects. So yeah. that was fine, you know, like but your solution sounds kind of reasonable to make sure that everyone has the same code level or code, you know, base in a in a repository. That sounds like a good solution. I mean at the end of the day, you know, when when I look at this problem, it kind of takes you back to DLL hell in Windows, really, you know, years ago. Mm. And um, other technologies had similar issues, like when you look at the Java world with JAR files and stuff like that. That's still, from my personal point of view, not really properly solved. I mean, Maven is a step into the right direction and all those mm. build tools, but at the end of the day, you know, like because a jar file doesn't really carry a version, you you end up with kind of a similar problem, really. Mm. My biggest concern with it, more than anything else, is actually, um, uh, and, and it kind of goes, it kind of, it's um, it's an onboarding issue. It's it's a problem you hit early on when you start working with Go. Um, that was the first thing that I sort of hit. I was like, okay, we're going to write this project in Go. Cool. All right, how do we want to do package management? And any other platform would be like, oh, we well, just use NPM or RubyGems or Maven. You know, problem solved, sweet. I can move on to actually writing code. And then suddenly, but I hit this roadblock really quickly with Go where I'm just like, boom, okay, package management. Okay, now I need to do a whole bunch of reading on how Go workspaces work, how Go package management work, and all the 17 different options of how to do package management and pick one that works for me even though I've never worked with this platform before. Yeah, and, fair enough. Yeah, I find I found that really tough. Um, we fixed something; it seems it's working really great. Haven't had any problems with it. Um, but for for onboarding, I find that that was that was a bit of a bit of a, uh, a big roadblock to getting on board. And I've seen that happen a lot. People going the first thing they hit, they're like, oh, "How do workspaces work? How do uh, how do how do I manage? You know, all that sort of stuff." How are you handling your dependency management, uh, Mark? Similar to Kyle. I basically just punted <laughs> on the whole thing. That's sort of just like Kyle because I'm, oh. I'm using these things for personal projects too. I, so I think um, if I were to do it at work, I would probably look into uh, either vendoring or something like GPM. If you go, if you just Google Golang dependency vendoring, you'll get a much better description of it uh, than what I can provide here. But I think in a nutshell, um, 
it's it's terribly old school sounding, but it's basically you just bring these dependencies into your projects themselves rather than use something like npm which or Bower, which has like a shared cache of stuff or maybe or whatever. So yeah. yeah, and then that way you've got you've got well, there obviously all these things are about trade offs. When you vendor, you've got your own trade offs. How do you get uh, how do you get changes from the main project back into your stuff, et cetera? How do you keep up to date, keep things from going stale? You still also have problems like, like let's say you're working on a team and you're working with someone else's package and you fix a bug in that package. How do you get that bug fix into your code base? So do you change everything to point to your fork of that repo until uh, yeah. until your pull request is merged, stuff like that. So it's definitely but, yeah, uh, it's definitely not a not an easy problem to solve. Yeah, there, there's some fun things around that as well. Yeah, had that had that issue. So we're we're coming up on an hour, and we we've got halfway through our list <laughs> of stuff. Um, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we do a quick synopsis of problems that we think Go is good and bad for? Um, and then we'll talk about we've got we've got a huge list here of of uh of go resources we can put up on our blog but why don't we pick maybe one or two to talk about each as well and then we'll wrap up from there i have i would like to talk about um ide choices quickly and what you guys are doing about that okay mark's gonna leave in 10 minutes okay (laughs) so uh kai where do you want to go we got 10 minutes pick something uh well then i pick ide choices (laughs) okay uh, the Golang plugin for IntelliJ is really, really good, but make sure you use the daily version because it's way better than what's on the browser repositories. Yeah, it has become much, much better than it used to be, I think. That's what I've, what I've heard and seen as well. There's an, what I've played with is another thing called Light IDE. Have you seen that? Nope. It's a specific IDE made for Go, which is kind of nice. I think they used an older version of open source IntelliJ to build it. But it's from from the looks of, looks of it at least. But it's basically a plain Go IDE, and cool. it supports like in in IDE debugging with um, GDB. Oh, that's pretty good. Which is, which is kind of nice. Yeah. The, the IntelliJ one, um, I actually converted a workmate over from Sublime because you could click through functions. Um, that was the big win for him. So not only does it give you code completion, but if you if you're trying to explore a code base, you're like, oh, where is that one? That that function called from? Okay, I can click on it. Oh, it takes me there. Great. So it does all that follow through nice stuff really nicely, and it has some refactoring support as IntelliJ stuff often does. Um, yeah, I found it pretty good. Mark, I use IntelliJ. Sweet. Yep. Really like it. The, and I also do you use the daily version that? or do you use the one in the uh, repositories? I use one in the repositories actually. Try the daily version. I'll have to, I, I will. I'll check it out. The one thing I like about using IntelliJ with Go is that you can actually write like like cheap hackish uh, plugins in Go and use IntelliJ's external tool support to run your Go code. So I use it. Oh, I've got that. some. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it's pretty sweet. So you can like for example, you can uh, easily run Go imports on your files on save. I have a I have a little. Uh, command line app I wrote to do some parsing of my timekeeping at work. And what I do is basically highlight the text inside of my bra- inside of my editor, and then I hit a command key, and it runs the Go program I wrote, which uses the system keyboard to bust data back and forth like oh, between wow. the IDE and my clipboard. <laughs> yeah, and all that was just real easy with some open source packages that are out there for Go. So, yeah, I, I like IDE or uh, so, IntelliJ for it's this. It's almost become a replacement for Bash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nothing will replace Bash. You can write everything in Bash. 
<laughs> Just because you can doesn't mean you should, but you can. That's right. That's what's important. All right, cool. Um, why don't we, because I know you got to run soon, why don't we talk about a couple of resources? Why don't we get you to go first, Mark, because you have to run the, like, pick a couple of resources that you like a lot. Um, you've, you've written a whole yeah. bunch of stuff here on our docs, and we'll put that all up on, on the blog post. But uh, Yeah, you... so that'll be on the blog post. Start at golang.org, I'd say. So that's your... You go there and you get to uh, in the documents tab. You've got a lot of articles written about mm. Go. It's got links right into the packages uh, on the blog. There's lots of great stuff on the Go blog. Also, right from GoLang.org, you've got a link right to the tour on the front page to get started with. It. It's re- it's great. It's that's like really a good. browser. Tour. I started that way. Yep. Yeah, that's and that's fantastic. So. Go there. Uh, like I said earlier, Slack. So uh, gophers.slack.com if you want. Uh, there's there is also a uh, Gophers channel on. Oh, we that's funny. We I've been talking about Gophers. But we never even mentioned that. So um, go people call themselves Gophers. Just you know deal with it. So um, the 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 you know the uh, what do you call it? avatar avatar icon whatever for yep. Go is a Gopher. So it's all pretty good. <laughs> so uh, those are two those are two pretty great things. Um. I'll probably bring up a couple of things that I really like, a couple of packages I, I like. Um, one I want to talk about is GoConvey, which is a BDD-style testing package. That I, I love GoConvey. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So not only does it give you a nice BDD-style thing, it gives you um, it gives you a nice web interface that runs itself. So you run GoConvey, and it fires up the web interface, and it watches for changes in your code. And every time you run it, it reruns your tests in the browser. And it's it's really it – not it runs your tests and gives you your results in the browser, I should say. But it also has really nice integrations into code coverage, so it gives you code coverage graphs as well. It's beautiful. It, it does it does an awesome job. We're using it at work. Um, and it's really awesome. Uh, and I've talked about Gen, which is really cool if you're looking for that generic slight functionality. Um, they've got some other packages for doing stuff like that yourself too that, that it uses. Um, and I'll bring up one other one because I really like it. I'll bring up Mux, which is a, it's an HTTP routing library um, under the, the auspices of the Gorilla Group. Um, pretty much everything written by Gorilla is awesome. Uh, I use that a lot for, for HTTP routing, and I really, really, really like it. It's really nice. We use a bunch of their packages. I've got a quick question. I'm just looking at the document, and Mark mentioned the Martini Web Framework. So what's that about? What is that doing? So it's a simple, very simple web framework written by – it's actually – do you guys remember from a couple of years ago, Jeremy Science, also known as Flex Gangsta? He uh, – right before one of the Maxes, I think it was, he put out some pretty funny videos. I don't know if you guys remember. He seemed like a pretty cool dude. Anyway, uh, he is now working a lot in Go, and he wrote this – tiny little web framework called Martini, sort of Sinatra style or Flask style. It's just simple routes, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I've been using for my personal projects. And then he also, there there was some griping a while back about the fact that he uses injection, or I'm sorry, uh, reflection, and it's got a dependency injection thing built into it that uses reflection, and people are griping about, oh, you shouldn't use reflection, it's slow, blah, blah, blah. And so, so he came out with another thing. Idiomatic go. He, he, did, he did admittedly write a whole blog post, which I thought was kind of impressive, going, yeah, you guys are saying it's not idiomatic Go. Pretty much a ride. So here's a new package. Here's a whole new framework yeah. called Bernie, uh, which I thought yeah. was very cool of him, actually. Yeah, classy. Classy dude. Uh, one thing I did want to mention was uh, two other things. The Go language spec is really readable. So yeah. if you do want to start to learn Go, go read the language spec. It's, uh, it's not a bad read. And then there's also the book on the GoLang website uh, called Effective Go, also mm. another doc you want to read. It, you know, obviously play around with the language, get your feet wet, for, get your feet wet but check out Effective Go before you, spend, uh, before you start writing big projects in it as well. Yeah, I'm just looking at Martini, actually, at the GitHub page. That looks really interesting. Cool. 
yeah, I, I like it. I'm really happy with it. And the other thing, when I was starting out writing web stuff, the, the one thing I did not want to do was have to start and stop a server every time I made a change. And mm-hmm. most of these web, uh, most of these web frameworks in Go, I would, I think have this sort of thing now, but basically you just uh, started up with a thing called Jin, J-I-N. Uh, goes with the whole martini thing. Jeremy wrote that as well. And, uh, you just gin it up and then you've got the, the typical F5 refresh type stuff that you know and love. Oh, cool. Mark, it's funny you mentioned uh, you mentioned Go Convey. When I started using Go Convey as a uh, a once a one time creator of a unit testing framework, yeah. I was I was like, oh my lord, this is this is how it should be done, and I was hanging my head in abject shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Go Convey. Yeah, Go, really convey well is, Go Convey is really nice. Okay, Mark, I know that you need to go, uh, so we'll probably have to wrap up there. I'm sure we could continue talking for many another hour. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, thanks for having me. It's been fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. thanks a lot. Um, cool. So if people want to hassle you online and, and send you various uh, awful things, where can they do that? Mm-hmm. Probably Twitter, so at Mark Escher. Probably the best place. Probably the best place. Yeah. That's cool. Um, if people want to hassle me and send me nice things, um, you can reach me on Twitter at Neurotic, or uh, my website's probably the other fit, which has all my social media and various other stuff on it, which is compoundtheory.com. Kai, where can they reach you? Um, probably on Twitter is the best way, at Agent K. Wonderful. All right. Can, can you still do your, do voting on your desktop images, Mark, on your website or wherever that was? On your oh, you had some some social media integration with like desk ground, desktop background images. At some point, oh, somewhere. you're talking about desktopper? Oh yeah, de- okay. <laughs> so I have a link on my website to a site called Desktopper, which is written by a couple of Melbourne guys actually, which is a social wallpaper sharing site, which I actually really like because I'm I'm really anal about my wallpapers and I like having Most them all the time. Most social media integration ever. Yeah, so you can you can be my friend and see what wallpapers I like on there. And Most useless awesome. social media integration ever. Awesome. <laughs> computer wallpapers on your computer really, really, really important. Uh, Kai, Kai, these guys are disrupting the uh, desktop wallpaper space. And they will be billionaires. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if Is, they pivot, I wonder when they pivot into something more specific. It's awesome. Or no. useful. It's or useful. <laughs> I can go on the site and I can look at all these awesome wallpapers and I can just download them straight to my Dropbox and it's awesome. Uh, I think yeah. it's cute that you actually must look at your desktop enough to care about wallpaper. I I I, I change it. Like I'll be like, oh, you know what? Uh, you know, today's going okay. Maybe I'll need to. I'll change my wallpaper. I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling better. Yeah, I, I like having a new wallpaper. It's a change. It's nice. It's probably because you know Mark has that academic background of being a multimedia designer and not a <laughs> developer or computer scientist. That's why he likes the visuals of his My wife is a graphic oh, designer and a stylist, and she doesn't change her wallpaper. And I, and <laughs> I don't know, you know, so, so draw your own conclusions. So I, I shamefully admit that looking at these wallpapers that you've got here, Mark, some of them are actually pretty nice. <laughs> there you go. I have yeah. I've yeah. got a fan. Woo-hoo. There you go. You can follow. Well, me I wouldn't go that far. You can follow me on desktopper, and then you know we can we can have you know. Some okay. Now let's wrap this All up. Right, wrap this up. <laughs>
getting worse. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you, gentlemen. Yeah, you too. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Yeah. <laughs> bye, bye.